Welcome to Sin 315. We're here to encourage and equip Christians to engage in the adventure of sharing Jesus with those that God puts into their life. And we're so glad you're here. Matthew, Hi. after three years of diligently working hard, just scrubbing away, we've, <clears throat> ma we've made it. We've made it. We've attained, we have arrived. Mayor Bill Wells is in the house. In the house. And he's running for Congress. I can't believe it, but we <laughs> have to help him. I don't know how he squeezed us, in, squeezed, yeah. squeezed us in, Bill, but I'm so glad you're here, brother. Yeah, oh, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, the people that have been listening for a long time know that we, one of the things that we do is we try to inspire them through stories of people who share Jesus and share their faith in places that might be tricky sometimes, that might be a little difficult. And uh, all I know is our most viral video is you standing up no kidding. at FutureQuest and saying, I'm the mayor of El Cajon and Jesus Christ is my Lord. And 2,000 kids take videos <laughs> of you, post it up, and Foothills is viral. And not oh, every so mayor cool. would do that. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I had no idea that anybody had even ever seen that. Oh, yeah, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands. Yeah, I'll see if I can get a current number on it. But I remember when I checked shortly there after, and I was over 10,000 people quickly because people that stand up on their, uh, for their faith, uh, they get noticed. Yeah. I don't think that's just in the faith community. I, being mayor and being out in the campaign trail right now and living the life I've lived the past 10 years, I get the sense that people are hungry for authenticity and truth. Mm -hmm. And when you speak plainly and openly and you don't equivocate and, and you just say who you are, people respond really positively to that. And it's usually the antithesis of what you expect. Oftentimes in that case, most political people would say, even if I believe that, I can't say that out loud because right. I'm going to offend somebody or somebody's going to take it out of context or somebody would use it against me. I never intended to be in politics, so I guess I figure I just, if the people decide to send me home for being myself, then so be it. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to get what they get. You're <laughs> honest and upfront and what is what you get. I remember when I was on the board of directors for the East County uh, Chamber of Commerce. It's hard to hide that I'm a Christian because they know I'm a pastor. So they hope I'm a Christian. Yeah. But the people that were Christians in the Chamber of Commerce, they were like secret believers, like it says in Acts. Yeah. And they were afraid they were going to get bombarded by people who were going to, I don't know, treat them poorly. And they came out. They came out of the Christian closet and they felt a, a liberty to share their faith. And I think it's the same with you. I, I think that the people that are listening, some of them are serving in places that they might get canceled or whatever. And so what you've done is, is a great example for those people. Yeah, I graduated high school a long time ago, so I don't want to be in high school anymore. I, my life is not made or broken by how popular I am in school. Yeah. You're pretty popular around here, brother. Yeah, we love you. I want to just walk through your journey with you. How did you come to faith? How did you give your life to Jesus? How did that happen? I grew up in an atheist family. My dad was a nice guy. I liked him, loved him a lot, but he was an alcoholic. He had come back from Korea, and I don't think he ever really recovered from Korea very well. And he struggled and eventually took his own life when I was eight. And then my mom was a, a radical liberal and an atheist, and she was addicted to, to prescription pills. And she tried, but I was pretty much 
on my own since I was about seven, eight years old. I, I turned to friends a lot, and I, I got a lot of my validation and just my family from my friends. And I had a friend that had a girlfriend, and I had a car. I ended up driving them around a lot. <laughs> and I would often take them back to her house, and her dad was sick. She had told me that her dad had cancer and that he was very sick. And I was a little squeamish about meeting him, and but they would go off and take walks and stuff and you know, do what kids did. And um, I would be stuck in the house waiting for them. And her dad came out one day, and I thought, oh, God, here's this guy. He's sick, and he's probably going to be you know, just depressing. And he was exactly the opposite. He looked terrible. He was thin. He looked like he was on death's door. Happiest guy I'd ever seen. Just so warm and open and super intelligent. He just, come to my study, let's talk. So, you know, he was uh, in his last year of law school at, I think, 55 at that point. He had already been a fighter pilot. He had been a pastor. He had been a wow. novelist. He'd written, written several books. <laughs> he was a missionary pilot. He'd done just everything you could do. And he's and even though he had cancer, he didn't care. He went to law school, and he thought that would be the next step for him. And Of course. In our conversations, he started talking to me about, tentatively, just asking me, did I know anything about God? Did I have any faith? Did I, what did I think? And I said, I said I'm sorry, I just, I, it, that, that's not for me. I'm not into that. And he said, okay, I get that. He goes, but you studied it a bit. And I said, me, a little bit. He goes, yeah, not much. He goes, I said, no, <laughs> not much. And he said, yeah, you should read this. And he gave me a book. I don't remember what the first one he gave me, but he gave me a bunch of books, and, and I started reading the books and coming back and discussing it with him. How cool. And he didn't push me. He just discussed things with me. And we discussed also history and philosophy and politics and a lot of things. And I, I was hungry for it because I didn't have a dad. So it filled a, a need for me. Hmm. And then he gave me the late great planet Earth. I remember. And I took it home and I read it. I was reading the part about Daniel, and all of a sudden it just clicked with me that this is real. I remember just getting up and pacing around saying, this is real. What am I going to do? Because if this is real, the rest of it's real. Mm -hmm. And then I'm in trouble because I have rejected this all my life, and now I know it's real. What do I do? Eventually, he led me to Christ. Yeah, I was 17 was, at that time. Recently, we had Dr. Sherry Struthers on, and... Your story and hers are similar in the fact that God stands up to your intellectual scrutiny. In fact, it's, it makes a, a whole lot more sense than some other things we dream up. That's part of what I got out of that. I certainly felt that. And the thing that still blows me away and always has is that the God of the universe took enough time to send somebody to go get me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The hard way. I just... It was so personal. And I learned at that point that evangelism is not millions of people. It can be for Billy Graham and all those. Sure. But I think we always think about that. Whenever I hear somebody talk about they're going to do evangelism, they, they say, okay, we'll rent this stadium. And we'll, it's really meeting one person, developing a relationship with them, answering their questions, encouraging them to study. I, so That's I think how Jesus that, does it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think so that really stuck with me. I'm sure it has because I see it in your walk and I see it in how you live your life. Okay, so that's how you met Jesus. How did you get into politics? What made you think that would be a good idea? Oh, boy. <laughs> Basically, in 2002, 
I had been doing very well. I had started the business. I was making a lot of money. I had a big house in Alpine with a big mortgage and a couple of expensive cars and taking trips and living the life. And wasn't going to church. I, I was a believer, but I, I wasn't that involved <clears throat> and very self-involved. And my wife, who has always been extremely faithful. Hi, Betty. Hi, Betty. <laughs> yeah. She has the gift of prophecy. And I know people roll their eyes and say, oh, boy, here we go. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I want to hear it. <laughs> but I, And I've always been more skeptical. So I remember when we first got married, I had just graduated school, and I was going to start working at this hospital. And we got back from our honeymoon, and it was the first night back home, and she woke me up in the middle of the night and said, hey, wake up. I said, what's up? She said, you're going to get a job at a church. And I said, Oh no! <laughs> I, I just took the job at Sharp. I'm I'm really excited about it. We've been waiting a long time for this, and and she said, I don't know, but you're going to get a job at a church, and I, and I said, I don't think so. And she said, Okay, whatever. And she went. <laughs> we went back to sleep. Two days later, I got a call from a, a pastor I'd never met before. Who said, You don't know me, but I, I talked to a mutual friend who said you're a very good piano player. Mm. And I said, oh, thank you. He said, would you be willing to play piano at my church and lead worship? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't really have time <clears throat> for that. I, I just took a new job. He goes, it's, it's not going to take much. It's, you, you need to come in on Wednesday nights and, and Sunday mornings. We're a small church. Just rehearse on Wednesdays and, and do the service on Sunday. That's it. He said, I'll pay you 600 bucks a month. And I thought, oh, my God, that's my rent. That, <laughs> I imagine now rent's only $4,000 a month. But imagine if somebody came to you and said, I'll give you $4,000 a month for a part-time job. You say, yeah. yeah and, and quite frankly, something you enjoy doing. Yeah, exactly. So I got this call from a church. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I know. I'm going to get there. Come on. So that was my first experience with Betty being dead on accurate. Yeah. And then it had to happen a couple other times. And then I started saying, so, so what's going to happen with this contract that I'm trying to get? And she'd say, uh, it doesn't work that way. I, I don't know. I, and, and I said, but how do you know? And she said, I don't know. It just happens. I just Sometimes I just, sometimes I hear a voice in my right ear. Sometimes I, I just have a dream. Sometimes I just know something. It, and I said, okay, whatever. A couple years go by. We had one of those dark family times. It, my business f blew up. I was also an administrator at this hospital. I got fired because they brought in a new administration and they got rid of all the upper management. And I went from making quite a bit of money to making almost no money. And at the same time, we had a, a problem with one of our kids that was just devastating. And my life was just in a very short period of time. A few weeks went from everything's great to we are in the depths, the worst possible thing. And I, and I was depressed. And Betty would go in the closet and uh, pray. And she came out one day and she said, okay, God, talk to me. And I said, oh, really? I said, what's the plan? And I'm thinking we're going we're gonna to move to Arizona or we're, we're going to start a business. <laughs> or I, and she said, oh, you're supposed to go into politics. You're supposed to run for office. And I said, that's the stupidest thing <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. I said, you... He hasn't learned yet, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no. I said, no, I, that's... No, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. And she said, I don't know what to tell you, but that's what you're supposed to do. And she says, I'm not unsure about this. It's, it was clear. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, I don't know about other people's wives, but my wife, once she gets an idea in her head, she, she keeps at it. She's not going to let me rest. 
she kept saying, you got to do something about this. I said, I wouldn't even know what to do. How does one run for office? I, you just show up and say, I want to be congressman? Or She said, I don't know. I said, this is your idea. She said, no, it's God's idea. And <laughs> she said, you need to call Pastor Garlow. Now, we had, we had just started the Skyline there you go. at the time. And I thought, I said, Garlow doesn't know me, and he's going to think I'm a nut. And she said, just call him. So I called up and talked to his secretary, and I said, he doesn't know me, but I, I, I want to talk to him about running for office. And she said, okay, well, I'll tell him. I'll get back to you. So she calls me back the, the next day, and she said, yeah, Pastor Garlow um, told me to have you call somebody else. <laughs> and uh, Jim Kelly, you know. I know Jim Kelly very well. I go to church with Jim Kelly. Yeah. I thought, okay, this is exactly what I thought. He thinks I'm crazy. And <laughs> I called Jim Kelly, but Jim Kelly was not. He didn't put me off at all. He was like, oh, this is great. I'm so excited. You seem like a great candidate. Oh, candidate. Wait, wait. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been talking to my wife? <laughs> and he said, yes. He goes, let's get you in. Let's get you running for a school board. And the, the application period is, it's due uh, Friday. I think it was like <laughs> Tuesday. And I said, what do I do? He goes, oh, I'll, I'll show you exactly what to do. And you go to, so I just, in a blind faith, I went down and I, uh, put my name in to run for a school board at Alcohol Valley School Board. Yeah. I ran the worst campaign in the history of mankind and uh, got <laughs> killed. And Sometimes things start out that way. Yeah. And the, so then I threw up my hands and said, now what? I did what I was supposed to do. I, I wasted all this time. I put up all these signs. And, but I got a call from uh, Mark Lewis, the, the mayor. And he said, yeah, I'd like your campaign. I'm like, okay, really? Okay. <laughs> and he said, would you like to be on the planning commission? I said, sure, why not? So I got on the planning commission. I did four years of the planning commission. And by the time I was done with that, I knew how to be a city councilman. Yeah. And so then I ran for city council that year against 12 other people, and I won. And then a few years later, Mark had to resign, and I took over for him, and I've been mayor since 2013. So that's how I got in. That's how it works. Wow. One thing I love about that story is um, this can apply to other people who have, number one, prophetic wives, but number two, who really are trying to listen for God's direction yeah. in their life, whatever it is, and having the courage to, even in their skepticism, to step out and say, okay, I'll take a step. And even with defeat at first, you went through a lot of work. I know what those campaigns are like. I've helped my son-in-law and other people friends of mine. It, it's a lot of work. So I could, that could have been very discouraging. And you could have told Betty, yep, see, I tried. It's all done. But I started uh, going back to church on a regular basis at that, po at that point. I think the, pro the thing that we were going through racked me a bit. And I said, I need to, I need to not have one foot in and one foot out. So it, by the time I did get to the point where city council, I was much more accepting of the role that God had in my life and the supernatural aspect of life in general. Yeah, and the Lord accomplished a lot of things. It sounds like he, he wooed you back into a closer relationship with him and all of that. One of the things for me that I've seen, and I've talked to other friends of mine in other parts of the country, they can hardly believe how government, church, and business work together in East County, but especially in the city of El Cajon. It's been extraordinary and not to be taken for granted. 
And I know that for yourself, before COVID, we had a group of pastors that that we would pray for you before every city council meeting just for God's wisdom so that you would execute we need to, we his purpose. start that again. Okay, you got a deal. I just was waiting for you to, to talk about that. I'm in. I thought you guys would give it up on me. Uh, no, we just thought you were so good that prayer wouldn't improve anything. That's not true. No, we'd love to do that because this is really an area that's and I talk to friends in other parts of the country, there is such hostility and animosity yeah. and nobody listening to each other. Could you fill the people in that are listening when we, we had some folks that were coming in from out of town and they said, we're going to burn down El Cajon. Could you take us back there and see how? I think we have to go back to 2013. Okay. When I became mayor, I never expected to be mayor. And it, the Red Sea just parted for me. Which is, if you're not in politics, it's really hard to understand how amazing that is. There are people that spend their whole life trying to be mayor. And it just happened for me, which is indicative of how I started. But again, Betty, when I first got appointed, it was November. And she said, you have to give the city the God. And I said, okay, how are we going to do that? She said, I don't know, you just have to do it. So... So I I thought about it. I thought, you know what we're going to do is we're going to have a meeting on top of Mount Helix, which is this mountain that overlooks all all of the East County, for those of you who don't live here. And we're going to go there first thing on uh, New Year's Day. And before we do anything else, we're going to acknowledge God and we're going to pray for all the people that we can see from the mountaintop, which is the entire area. Yeah. And we're going to give the, give the city the God. Hot dog. And so we started doing that. And it wasn't long after that, maybe two years, maybe, yeah, I think two years, that we had a Ferguson-style event happen in El Cajon. And it was right after Ferguson. You, yeah. you remember Ferguson, yeah. Missouri? Yeah. And all the chaos that happened as a result of that. And we there had been a few incidents. There was Baltimore. There was Ferguson. There was Dallas, a couple other places. And it all didn't end up very well, right? They'd have the shooting incident, and even though the person oftentimes being shot had a, a lot of role in their own demise. Yeah. People just didn't care. We were <clears throat> at a place in the country where people were looking for racism and they were, they were really, I think, uh, building it up to some degree. And there's a lot of anger and I, and I get it. I understand the hostility. I understand the anger. I, I, I didn't understand the way it was expressed, but I, I do understand the anger. And we had a same, similar situation happen in El Cajon. Uh, we had a uh, police officer shoot an unarmed African-American man. There was video taken by a, somebody watching with a cell phone, and our police were able to get that video. As soon as it happened, I went up to the command center, and I, I saw the video. And what I saw was a very agitated man. Uh, the police officer was trying to calm him down, but he did look like he was pretty violent and dangerous. The man reached into his pocket, pulled out something that looked just like a gun. It would have, was a vaping pipe. It, had, it looked like a cell yeah. phone with a metal tube coming out of it. And he held it in the shooting position and he crouched down and did the, the shooting move. Yeah. And the police officer did shoot him and killed him. Immediately, I'm in the command center, they're showing this to me and I'm saying, okay, everybody's gonna understand what happened here. This was not, a racially motivated thing. This was, you know, you can't do that to a police officer and not expect to be shot. 
But of course, we weren't living in a time where people were paying much attention to logic. People were believing what they wanted to believe on both sides. People had preconceived ideas about what was happening in the country writ large. And I said, we need to release this video. And my city manager said, we can't release the video because we made an agreement with the district attorney, Bonnie DeManis at the time, that we would not be releasing any of these kind of videos, that we would let them release it when they thought it was best. If I said, wow, when did we sign this? It's about four months ago. I said, okay. So I'm, I left the meeting not knowing really what to do, waiting to see what was going to happen. I'm, I get in my car. I'm listening to the, the car. I'm, the first thing I'm listening to the radio interviewing somebody. He said, oh, yeah, I saw it happen. He begged for his life, and the officer smiled and shot it. And <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh, I just saw the, the video. That's not what happened at all. Right. But you know what was happening at that time. Yeah. Immediately, the streets started filling up with protesters. We had our own local people from San Diego County that came down immediately and were filling that space and chanting and yelling and screaming and demanding. And then pretty soon, we started having people being bussed down from uh, Los Angeles and even from Chicago. So agitators were coming in um, because that's they, they really wanted that kind of confrontation. And so I called a friend of mine that was head of the NAACP at the, mm -hmm. at the time, and I said, you need to help me here. He said, well, I'll come out and talk to you. I said, okay. I said, well, I got to do a press conference. You come and see me after the press. And at the same time, I called Miles McPherson and got his advice, which I'm really glad I did because he gave me great advice on how to handle it. And basically, he just said, don't forget to be compassionate. Don't forget to be understanding because there are two sides to the story, even though a lot of people think there aren't. There, there are. And I also called the pastors because I gave a, a press conference, and in the press conference, I didn't do what most mayors did. Instead of uh, pounding my fist and saying, this <clears throat> a bad behavior will not be tolerated. We're going to come down with an iron fist and crack heads if anybody is causing any trouble. I said, this is a tragedy for everybody. Everybody. It's a tragedy for the people that lost their loved one. It's a tragedy for the man who lost his life. It's a tragedy for the police officer because he'll never be the same. <clears throat> and I don't believe anybody woke up that morning and said, I want to be killed or I want to kill somebody. Right. I think sometimes things happen and they get out of control and it, this is a horrible event and the, the gentleman from the NAACP really liked that he came down with some guys from the Urban League and they all said we've never heard a, a public official say it like that and we really want to help you we really like you they said but we're not going to do anything unless you release the video I went back to my city manager I said I think they're right I think we should release the video I think it would clear a lot of things up he said, I agree with you. Your political career is going to be over. And I, I said, yeah, I, I, I figured that. And so I called the district attorney. And I said, I want to release the video. And she said, absolutely not. If you do that, your political career will be over. I will personally ensure that you are never elected to another office again. And you're going to be the most hated man in, in San Diego politics. And I said, yeah. I, I came into this reluctantly. I never intended to be in politics. So if God got me into this. If he wants to take me out, then so be it. And so I released the video anyway. 
And the whole thing dispersed at that point. And the pastors had a, a big role in that because they were really engaging people in the crowd. And it's interesting that we, had, we still had a, over two weeks of protesting. Yeah. But we didn't have what they had in other cities. Yeah. Something happened in that prayer meeting. I was there. And something happened when we prayed for his peace over our city. You gave him the city. And we cried out to him to protect that. And so there wasn't any deaths. There wasn't major damage. No, there was nothing lit on fire, no glass broken. And we had police officers undercover in the crowd. And they came back and told me, they said, these agitators from the other cities, they were like going up to people and said, let's burn things, let's break. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, no, I'm not into that. I, I don't want to do that. And they, right. they just couldn't, they couldn't like the... The firecracker. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think I, I attribute that a lot to the pastors and to God's, God's blessing on this city. Amen. He, he really does care about this city. And this can happen in other cities. There's nothing extraordinary about El Cajon. We're no. a bunch of regular folks and a whole lot of us love Jesus. And Pastor Mark at Foothills had a very clear teaching. This is the church's role. This is government's role, and this is business's role. And for years and years, once again, before COVID, we had a mayor's prayer lunch, yeah. and all of the area mayors came, even those who probably didn't have a strong faith, but with hundreds of people showing up and calling out to God and us praying for the mayors every single year on the National Day of Prayer. I want people who are listening to understand that can happen in their city, that they can be a part of that, as yeah. long as they're not trying to fill a role. The church should not be the government of a city. They should pray for the government of the city and they have another role altogether. And we, working together, we make this better. Now, I want to say something though, because I, when people hear me talk about this, immediately they go to the fact that I want to have some kind of theocracy, that I want to make everything about prayer and Christian faith in government. And that's just the furthest thing from the truth. Frankly, 90 9.9% of the things that I do in government have nothing to do with any kind of faith at all. It's just yeah. filling potholes and fixing streetlights and making sure the police and the fire department are getting paid properly. And So it's not like I'm asking my police to go out and evangelize people on the streets and things like that. We're acting like any other city. Mm -hmm. It's just that I was willing to go out and say, part of who I am is that I'm a Christian. And so, yeah, it's a, it affects the way I live. It affects the way I make decisions. It, it, it affects the way we deal with crisis. It doesn't control it, but it, it's a part. And so I think when you said any city can have this, I think you need to have some leaders in the government that are willing to not be afraid of, yeah. re of retribution yep. and, and being willing to say, I'm not advocating a, th a theocracy, but I am a Christian. Yeah, unashamedly. With some of the other boards that I've served on, we've accomplished some great things working together with people who are far from faith, but they're people of character, they're people that do good work, and we accomplish important things in our city because we're willing to roll up our sleeves and for the good of our community. I want to get a little bit about this. You didn't want to be in politics. You tried to just lead worship, minding your own business. Now you're running for Congress. Did Betty tell you she had no. heard about that? <laughs> no, but I will tell you this, that what happened was I wasn't thinking about running for Congress. And my consultant, who I've been with for 20 years, 
came and said, we should look at the 51st Congressional. I said, why? It's a suicide pact because it's a heavily Democrat district. I, and I, I, nobody's really uh, of any kind of a resume has ever run as a Republican in that district. It's just, it's not winnable. But it changed a little bit. There, it was redistricted last year. Mm-hmm. And part of that redistricting was that all of El Cajon is now in that district. So that, that changed it a little bit. But John said, look at these numbers. He he took like ballot measures that were conservative ballot measures that should have lost in the district based upon the Democrat registration. And they won in that district, two of them. And then he took another uh, candidate that had run as a, as a countywide candidate, and he won in that district, and he was a Republican. And we're suddenly realizing that, yes, it's a higher Democrat district by registration, but it's a the kind of Democrat district. It was not. It's not a, a super left wing San Francisco type of district. And interestingly enough, the the woman who had just won for Congress there, a <clears throat> young woman by the name of Sarah Jacobs, was more of your squad member, San Francisco, New York City kind of Democrat, just super radical. And we've never really had anybody run against her or the person before her, Susan Davis. And we don't really know what it would look like with a credible candidate that could raise some real money and had some real name recognition. And so I started thinking about it, but I still was leaning against it. It, it didn't seem like something... I was willing, I'm, I'm curious about it. I've already, I can't lie to you. Any kid growing up on the wrong side of the tracks to think about himself maybe being even considered for Congress, <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's heady stuff. I, yeah. and, I, and, you know, that would meet some psychological needs that I had, you know, for sure. But, ser- but still, I was uh, getting to the point my kids had all just gotten out of the house. Um, my business was doing pretty well. We were looking at traveling. I was looking at a different future yeah. than this. <clears throat> My first thought was no, but and Betty didn't have any real thoughts about it, which is interesting because I would have expected her to weigh in on this, but she said, no, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. So I got several phone calls, though, from all in one week. I got, people, I got a, a call from Africa, a call from Switzerland, and a call from Egypt, and then several calls from the States. All people saying, God's been talking to me about you, and there's something you're supposed to do. What is wow. it? What's going on? <laughs> and and that all happened in the week between Christmas and New Year's. And so then I thought, I have to really think about this. And something came into my mind, which kind of solidified it for me. And that was that normally when a candidate, a politician, considers running for office, they go through a series of checklists, and basically those checklists are, how does this affect me? Right. Is it good for my career? Can I win? How hard is it going to be? How hard is it going to be to raise money? How does this, just all basically, how does it affect me? And I realized that the country is in such a dangerous position that we are not 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years away from totalitarianism of some degree. We're, I personally think we're an election cycle or two away from losing the country. And it may not be dramatic with jackboots and stormtroopers, but nevertheless, 
it's not so crazy to think that we're on the verge of losing our freedom. You look at what's happening in Canada, you look at what's happening in China, you look at what's happening in Australia and the UK. They, it's, you can make the case that they're not totalitarian, but they certainly looks like a totalitarian government, and it's a soft totalitarianism. Yeah. And I think that our country, people in our country very much want to go in that direction. And so when that, when I realized that, it suddenly uh, dawned on me that it wasn't whether or not this was a good idea for me. I realized that I might be the only person that is positioned to take this particular congressperson out. And that if that's the case, and the country's in such bad shape, I have a moral obligation to do something. Wow. If... If you were the only doctor in town and there were a bunch of people mm. dying of a communicable disease, you couldn't stay home and hide. You would have to go and protect them because you're their only chance. And there's not that many people in this district that could win that seat. Yeah. So that's how I ended up here. And that's, once I figured that out, then I didn't even have any questions anymore. I realized that I had to do it. And Bill, what's the website that people can go to so that they understand where you stand on positions and donate if they want to and all that stuff? Wellsforcongress2024.com. All right. And can I pray for you right now? Absolutely. Father God, I know a whole bunch of people who listen to this podcast, and I know that they pray for their government representatives because those are men and women of courage who are out on the front lines of this. And Father, right now, we all join our voices together to pray for a man who has listened to you, who has served well, and we believe he's been called to to expand that influence and the voice of sanity (laughs) in our country. So Lord, we just ask that you would blow him away by your generosity, and thank you for the favor that's on his life. Thank you for the service that he has done so long, so well. We love you, Father, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.